Right now, I'm walking through the ancient streets of the old city, Jerusalem, and it was built upon the foundations of many other cultures from many other times, and it's a lot like our faith. Our faith has come down to us through the stories, the events, and the lives of other people that God has used. And so, in this series, we're inviting you to walk along with us as we look at those ancient foundations for our faith. This series is called Origins. tell you this is one of my favorite places in all of Israel. This is a place that is unexpected when it comes to being a part of what we know of Jesus because Jesus has been so sanitized for us who haven't experienced him as he is. He fits into a cute little story that doesn't have any bad parts or any bad words but that's not this place. This place is Caesarea Philippi. This place was dedicated to the worship of false gods. In fact, there were temples to many of them. There was a temple to Caesar, the, the living god of the day, and a temple to Zeus, and temple to Pan. And you can't sanitize Pan. He, he was a perverted god. They worshipped him through activities that you would think were reserved to places like Sodom and Gomorrah. It was also a place where Baal, the god of the underworld, the God of fertility was worshipped. This was an evil place, which is why connecting Jesus to it is so interesting. Caesarea Philippi was, you know, 20 plus miles from where Jesus did the bulk of his ministry. But Jesus, the rabbi, did something very unusual, unacceptable really in his day. He took his disciples those 20 plus miles to come to this place that was unthinkable for a rabbi, and he sat them on this rock he asked an important question. Who do people say that I am? And they said things like prophet and that. And then he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, underneath this place where all these gods were being worshiped, said, you're God. You're the Messiah we've been looking for, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you've got it. Then he said that which just so impacts me in my life and ministry and you. He says, it's on this rock. I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And interesting that Baal, the god of the underworld, was seen as flowing with water from up. And here there was a huge cave with water flowing all the way up and out. And it was the gates to the underworld. It was the gates to hell. And he said, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Why does it impact my story and your story? 
because the truth of Jesus would have never come to us. And it happened because he was willing to build his church on places like this. So good to see you this weekend. Thank you so much for being here. We're continuing in this series on our origins, really trying to bring the context of where the story and the life of Christ unfolded into our embrace here in the 21st century. And as I said in that introductory video, this really is one of my favorite places to visit when I'm in Israel. And it's not because it's one of the most beautiful or well-known or sensational sites. It's, it's simply because it's a site that has impacted me so profoundly. The, the very first time I had the privilege of standing in that place, Caesarea Philippi, it literally changed the way I looked at Jesus. It helped me to see him a little bit more up close and personal and how relevant he is to my setting here in the 21st century. It, it changed my view. Even though I had been a pastor for a couple of decades already when I stood in that site, it, it changed my view of the church and what the church is really supposed to be what we're supposed to be concerned about. It changed my view of the Bible and what I can get from the Bible. And so I, I just really want to try this weekend to help you to have the same experience that I had the first time I stood on that rock. Though I can't take each and every one of you there. Maybe along the way, many of you will get to go and stand there with us. But but I believe without going there, I can help you experience a little taste of what I experienced in that place by seeing it in the Bible itself. The, the truth is, what I learned while standing in Caesarea Philippi, I could have learned without ever going there. All I had to do is really take the time to notice what God had already told me in the Bible itself. I just missed it. I just passed over it. So I, I've literally written this talk in a way that I hope might change your approach to the Bible. I don't want you to miss the kind of stuff that I so long missed just because I read past it and never saw it. I want you to understand the importance of disciplining yourself to take the time to Notice context to make sure you understand each word and each thing that's being said before you move on so you don't miss the full, profound impact of God speaking into your life. In the early days of my ministry and journey, I, I just read through wide swatches of the Bible and didn't understand a ton of it and didn't think it mattered. It did. It does. One of the ways I found that you can actually get more from the reading of God's Word, you can actually hear Him speak to you more personally here in the 21st century, is by approaching the Bible by asking questions. And so that's what I've done. I've, I've literally put this talk together based upon some questions that certainly help tease out the reality of this passage and what I experienced when I was standing on that rock in Israel, but but also you can apply it to different passages as you study them. And here's, here's the first question. What is Jesus doing here with his disciples? 
And I never asked this question when I read this passage. And I read this passage just dozens and dozens and dozens of times before I visited the site. But I never asked the question, what is Jesus doing here with his disciples? What is a spiritual teacher, a rabbi, the son of God, someone who's supposed to be above the darkness of this world, going to such a dark place for? And why is he taking people that he's supposed to protect and build up in the faith to a place that's so destructive to faith? Why is he taking his disciples there? I never asked the question because I never knew where he was taking them. I just read past that part to the to the more poignant stuff of this story. But look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. He tells us, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he then asked his disciples some things, and we'll see that in a moment, but it tells us right there, he went to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and yeah, all you have to do is go, well, I don't know where that is, and Google it or something, and figure out where that is, and what's involved in this place, so that you can get the impact of the context, but I never did. I said, yeah, 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 let's get to what he asked his disciples. And in so doing, I missed the point. Now, first of all, do you recognize the name of the place, Caesarea Philippi? It sounds a lot like the city we looked at in our last installment of Origins Origins last week, you know, when I was here live and in person and delivering that talk. Yeah, I was sick last week, so... You got to watch it on video like you do every week right now. No one's looking at me. They're looking at the TV screen. It doesn't even matter that I should. A lot of you didn't even know I wasn't here last week. Thanks. I really appreciate that. But last weekend, we looked at Caesarea. But it was, it was a different Caesarea. It was Caesarea by the Mediterranean. It was built by Herod the Great and, and kind of dedicated to Augustus Caesar because Herod could have never been great if he didn't have a partnership with Caesar, with Rome. And so he buttered him up and he named a great city after him. And his son learned the lesson well because his son, who in the Gospel of Mark is called Philip, Herod Philip is the one who really built up this city, called it Caesarea, dedicated it to Caesar. And then it's, of course, called by a different name as well, Caesarea Philippi. But it's... A different city with a very different lesson. As you saw in the video, it's, it's no ordinary place. In fact, if you really understand Caesarea Philippi, you'll know it's not the kind of place that you would picture Jesus going. It's, if you grew up in a religious environment, in a Sunday school environment, this isn't the kind of place the little old lady teaching the Bible would have talked about. This is not flannel graph worthy. This is not... Churchworthy. This is a terrible place. This isn't the kind of place you'd ever picture Jesus taking you to. It's the kind of place you would picture him saying, stay away from the way we've been taught about Jesus, the way we've learned about Jesus. He'd never go here, and he would tell us not to go here. But he's the one going here, and he's the one taking his disciples here. It's very interesting. To, to be honest, if, if we lived in Jesus' day and he was to take one of our kids to a place like this, we would have been ticked off and angry with him. And by the way, this is why so many were ticked off and angry with him. They didn't understand how he lived his life. If he was the son of God, why would he go to places like this? Because Caesarea Philippi was a dark place. The religious people of the day thought it was a place to be avoided. 
It was a place where they worshipped all the false gods, multiple false gods. Herod Philip built a temple to Caesar in dedicating this place to him because Caesar was considered the god of the Roman Empire, the the divine one, the one who provided life and freedom, the one who was deserving of worship in the Roman Empire. And so Herod Philip played into that and built a temple to Caesar where people could worship this one who provided for their economic well-being. But it wasn't just Caesar. There was also on this rock a temple to Zeus, you know, the god of gods, the god over all gods where people worshiped and lived in deception and destruction. And There were other gods, but two that I really need you to know about. There was a, a shrine to the god Pan here on this rock. There's no way to sanitize Pan. There's no way to make him church-worthy, make him PG-13. He was ultimately connected with fertility, and you can't disassociate him with dysfunctional and perverse sexual practices. He was pictured as a half-man, half-goat with a six-foot male member, and he was all about pursuing sexual gratification and release in all kinds of different ways with all kinds of different people without discrimination and without morals or without values. And, And so the way to worship this God was through the same thing. They would parade around in orgy-like fashion and experience sexual acts with people and animals and all kinds of things in a public display of their worship for Pan, all in hopes that he would give them economic prosperity and personal well-being and pleasure. And it happened right here on this rock in Caesarea Philippi. It's where they did these displays of dysfunctional perversion. There was also the god of Baal, and Baal was representative of so many things, but suffice it to say he was the god of the underworld. He was a god who was very hard to please, and if you were going to appease him and and get, get prosperity and pleasure and happiness from him, you needed to appease him with sacrifices. So desperate were they for their own well-being that they would sacrifice their infants to Baal so that he might bless their lives. And give them happiness. This is not the kind of place that most of us would want our kids to hang out. This is not the kind of place that most of us would even want to expose our kids to. And yet, Jesus intentionally brought his disciples to this place. It wasn't on the way to anything. It was way out of the way. In fact, it was wrong to go, according to the religion of his day. It was 20-plus miles from their more isolated, idyllic town where they could be safe from the darkness and hide from the darkness and protect their families from the darkness. Rabbis of Jesus' day would never go to a place like this. In fact, rabbis taught that the Messiah and this place couldn't coexist at the same time. So they taught that when Messiah would come, this place would be obliterated because darkness like that can't exist in the presence of Messiah. So the question is, when you really understand the place, what's Messiah doing here? What's the one calling himself the Son of God doing in a place like this? He's supposed to be a rabbi, and why did he bring his disciples? You see, all of a sudden it creates an an interest in what's going on. It, It creates the possibility of 
a greater understanding of this place. And this started unfolding for me as I stood on that rock for the very first time. And so I started reading this passage more carefully based upon what I was experiencing about this place. And I realized I had missed everything Jesus was telling me here. Because the text tells us why he's there and why he brought his disciples. You see, in the context of this place, he asked a couple of very interesting questions. And we know that the place was important to the questions because he intentionally went there 20 miles with his disciples to ask these questions. And here was the first question. He says, who do people say that I am? Now, that's an interesting question on its own, but you put it in this place, and it becomes a very different question. He's saying, here, where people call Caesar God, and people call Zeus God, and where people call Pan God, and worship him in such perversion, where people call Baal God, and make sacrifices that are inconceivable to you and I today. In this place where people call these people gods, who do people say that I am? And this is what they said in Matthew 16, 13. Some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Isn't it interesting? People calling Zeus and Pan and Baal God. But this one, Jesus, is only, you know, a prophet of some kind. Pretty interesting. But then Jesus did what Jesus always does. And very often, because sometimes we've, isolated ourselves from the real Jesus, sanitized him in our life. Jesus didn't stop with the impersonal question, you know, who do people say that I am? Who do others say that I am? He then got very, very personal. And he said, who do you say I am? Look at Matthew 16, verses 15 and 17. Simon Peter answered, well, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. What he's saying is, you're God. And Jesus replied, well, blessed. Man, that's going to introduce you to life and life in the fullness, Simon, because this wasn't revealed to you by man. Man thinks that Zeus and Caesar and Pan and Baal is God. But you've realized I'm God. My Father in heaven had to reveal it to you. Here he is in this context where all these false gods are worshipped. And he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, Zeus isn't God, and Pan isn't God, and Baal isn't God, and Caesar isn't God. You're God. And Jesus says, man, now you can experience life as God designed it. I'm telling you, when I stood on that rock for the very first time, it became very personal. I could no longer disconnect myself from the relevance of Jesus to my life, the importance of Jesus to my life. I had to make some very poignant applications to my life as a result of being there. And I just want to share a couple with you. First thing I thought as I stood on that rock was, wow, we live in a very similar place today. We here in the 21st century, we live in a very similar place to Caesarea Philippi. I mean, we live in a world where, where people in so many dysfunctional and self-destructive ways worship and devote themselves to 
false gods to things that they're looking to for significance and security and purpose in life that can never get. They're replacing the one true God with, with the same things people were looking to bail and pan for, power, prosperity, and money, and success, and material things, and pleasure, and meaning in life. If you think about it, our world has opted for a very similar and base view of sex and sexuality, that it's meant for this pure pursuit of pleasure and it has no greater meaning and there's certainly no values to be associated with it. And the fact that he went to this place as I stood on that rock helped me to understand that he's not detached from our world and he's not detached from what we experience in this world but he's at the center of it. He doesn't hide in little innocent, pure places like Capernaum and ignore the reality of what's going on in this world and real people's lives and in the kind of dark forces that we're facing each and every day. But he goes to these places. He knows they exist. He knows they're there. And he's promised us that he can help us to overcome it. Man, that helped me. As I stood there, I said, he understands my world. He understands my life. He understands what I'm experiencing. And the same is true for you. And then I had this thought. Jesus is asking us the same question today. He's saying, who, who do people around you in your world say that I am? You know, the sad reality is most of us don't even have a clue who they're saying that he is because we refuse to talk about him. Who do people say that I am? You know, who do people in your workplace setting, in your neighborhood, in your spheres of influence say that Jesus is? Do you even know? And then he's getting more personal and he's not asking you to be in the abstract about other people, but he's, he's saying, who? Who do you say that I am? As you live in this world where people are worshiping and living for and devoting their lives to power and prosperity and pleasure, who, who do you say I am? How do you live in relation to me? Do you live as those who worshiped on this rock Seeking these things with a replacement God? Or, or do you live like Peter who here said, none of these gods are real. You're God. And are you experiencing the blessing that comes with that? What I experienced in that place when I was there was the reality that the measure of my faith in Jesus as I live in this world day by day determines the measure of my experience of Jesus. And most of us just experience the world as others do because our measure of faith in Jesus is so small. We, we think of other things and the forces of darkness in this world as bigger and more real than he is. And so we miss him in our everyday life. Every single day, he comes to us with this question, who do you say that I am? And the way we answer that question determines how we live. Are we experiencing the blessing that Peter got to ultimately experience or are we living as those who are missing and rejecting Jesus in this world are? Do we recognize and follow him or not? Man, it just rocked me. And then 
I realize that there's another question that needs to be answered if we're going to genuinely understand the significance of what happened here. I mean, we're not done yet, right? And, and the question's pretty simple, but if you don't ask it, you're never going to get to the profound impact that God has for you here. And the question is this, what is Jesus really saying? I never asked the question. Because I thought I knew, I assumed I knew, I had accepted the storyline that others had told me, the sanitized Jesus. Upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. I didn't ask what he was really saying here because I thought I knew. But I didn't and realized this entire story built to that statement. He walked the 20 miles with his disciples and he stood in the presence of all of this junk and he said, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And it was all to get to this place where he could say, I want you to know on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell won't overcome it. Now, many people have different understandings of this, and, and you're among them. I'll just give you a couple examples, and this isn't about blasting people or beating people up. It's about expressing reality. Uh, Roman Catholics believe that here Jesus was talking about Peter. Makes sense. He says Peter. He says, you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And so they say what he was doing is he was selecting out Peter to be the first pope, and that's been passed down. And, you know, it's upon Peter, you know, the first pope, that the church would be built, and subsequent popes after that. And you know what? Even though a lot of people don't embrace that outside of Catholicism, there's some credibility to that. I mean, he was talking to Peter, and he said, upon this rock, and then later in the passage, you know what he says? He says, I'm going to give you guys the keys to the kingdom. You'll bind heaven and bind earth. And there was a lot of authority being handed over there. Something special going on there. And, and Peter is the word Petros for stone. And, and so it, I get it. But most Protestants don't accept that at all. And for those of you who aren't Christians, you're seeking out Christ. You need to know, we Christians, when we disagree with each other, treat each other gently and with respect. We're so kind, <laughs> so nice. Just love each other in spite of our disagreements, right? Most Protestants think that, no, you Catholics, isn't that Peter? Because he said, Petro, stone, but upon this rock, this huge boulder, I'm going to build my church. It's two different words. It's two different things. There's no way he's talking to Peter. And they say what Jesus was saying was, on this confession you just gave, I'll build my church. You're just Peter. You're like an ordinary human being. But on the fact that I am God, the Son of God, the Messiah, I will build my church and hell can't prevail against that. And by the way, there's a lot of credibility to that view because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to the Father but by him. He is the only solid foundation we can stand on. He is the truth that can set us free. And so, man, there's a lot of credibility to that idea. And so Catholics say one thing. Most Protestants say this other thing. And, and you know, both have some credibility. And everybody's just buying into that. And I, 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 here's the reality. Neither of those ideas captures the full point of this passage. And I didn't even get it until I stood on the rock. Remember, context is the key to understanding the Bible. You can't divorce what's going on in the Bible from the context that it's happening in. When he said, on this rock I'll build my church, they didn't think Peter, and they didn't think the confession. They thought, the rock we're standing on. On this rock, they were on a rock. On this rock, I'll build my church. 
Now, church isn't talking about a stone cathedral, a, a temple like men build. God talks about church in terms of people. He is going to build people into a community that loves instead of hates, that has peace instead of conflict, that lives on purpose and with values instead of the other way. And he says, I'm going to build my church here where, where people don't get who God is, where they build temples to Caesar and temples to Zeus and temples to Pan and temples to Baal and where they live dysfunctional, messed up, defeated, dark lives. It's here that I'm going to build my people. It's here that I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell won't prevail against it. You know, Jesus was simply saying that it's in the place where people experience defeat and despair that I am going to build my church. And then it goes further because he says the gates of Hades. And it's kind of like if you don't know better, he's just pulling it out of the sky. And so, you know, because he likes to talk about hell. So he says, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. It's like out of nowhere. But it wasn't out of nowhere. It was out of context again. You see, Hades was a term for death, for the grave, for the underworld, for, for hell. And that's what this rock at Caesarea Philippi was known as. You see, in Jesus' day, that huge cave back there was configured differently. A couple centuries ago, there was an earthquake that changed the topography. But in Jesus' day, water was gushing out of that cave like Niagara Falls, just gushing out. And water stood for fertility, but water came from the underworld, that place of the unknown, the abyss. That's the place of Baal. That was the place of darkness. That's where this insatiable God who created such havoc in their lives lived. And they had to sacrifice even their infants to, to, to appease this God so they could have fertility and a good economy. And along with all the sexual perversion that was practiced on that rock, infant sacrifice was done. And... They were thrown into the gateway to hell. The gateway to the underworld. The gateway to evil and darkness and desperation. It was an evil place known as the gateway to hell. Jesus was saying, I'm going to build my church here at the gateway to hell. I'm going to build my church here where darkness presently reigns in the places and in the people that have been defeated by darkness, by hell, that's where I'm going to build my church. It's not going to be in little, isolated towns that are safe places. It's going to be where hell reigns. You, you know what Jesus was saying? I realized it when I was standing on that rock, when I realized he went there on purpose, he was saying, I'm not going to hide from the world. I'm going to overcome the world. Jesus wasn't planning on playing defense. He was going to play offense. He was going to change the world. And by the way, he did. And he has. And he still is. And the reason he brought his disciples to this place is simple. He didn't want his people to hide from the world like the religious people of his day. As if God wasn't big enough to overcome Caesar and Pan and Baal and Zeus. As if God had something to fear. He didn't want his people to run. He wanted his people to stand. He wanted his people to go boldly into the world and live the courageous and impacting lives they were created to live. 
And this explains so much to me about the Bible. I, it's really hard to figure out why did these small town boys that were taught to hide in these little spiritual isolated villages, why did they, when Jesus left, go to all the darkest places in the world? Why did they go to Rome and Ephesus and Corinth? Why did they go to Athens, these pagan places that worshiped other gods? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus took them here and he said, this is where I want to build my church. At the gateway to hell. And Rome was a gateway to hell. And Ephesus was a gateway to hell. And Athens was a gateway to hell. Leading everyone to brokenness and despair. And that's where they built his church. Because the message of Jesus can change the darkest of places to the best of places. That's what the good news is about. I will build my church in places like this. And the gates of hell won't overcome it. Do you realize the reason we know about Jesus today is because his followers left their isolated little hideouts and went to the gateways of hell in order to share the light of Jesus with the world. And ultimately, it turned Roman, the Roman Empire upside down, and ultimately, it's changed our lives. And as I stood on that rock that first time, I realized that since I live in a similar place and since Jesus is asking me the same question, it's my turn now. You see, the gates of hell are still very real in this world. And the only way the gates of hell are going to be prevailed against is if people who know Jesus offensively go and spread the light in the center of them. Instead of hiding in their little offices and hiding in their little factories and hiding in their little neighborhoods and hiding in their little churches and hiding in their little holy huddles, afraid of the world, afraid of the darkness, afraid of all those bad places like the religious people of Jesus' day, we're supposed to go to the center of hell with the light of Jesus Christ and put out the fire and put away the darkness. That's what the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be. As you can see, I have very little to say about this passage. (laughs) I want to share as we come to an end, and I just want to warn you, we started a little late so that you could fight through traffic and not miss too much of the services, and I really appreciate that you fought through the traffic and that you're here. Appreciate all those of you who are in overflow, and I want to encourage you, you know, we have four services on the weekend. You can try another time if you'd like, but... You know, thanks for coming and being here, but we'll go a little bit beyond time because we started late. But as we come to the the concluding points of the talk, I want to share two negative realities with you and two positive truths. And then I'm going to end with one big illustration. The first negative reality I want you to see from this story is that if we're honest, hell is prevailing in most people's lives today. Jesus isn't a fairy tale. Jesus doesn't belong in the storybooks. When I stood on that rock at Caesarea Philippi, I realized that Jesus was acknowledging hell right now is in control. This is how people worship. This is how people live. Hell is prevailing in most people's lives. Darkness and despair and defeat and death. As I stood there, I had to get personal and get honest and say, you know, hell quite often prevails in my life. Darkness and defeat and loneliness and emptiness. 
feelings of insignificance, and the same is true with you. Hell's prevailing in most places. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 16 and 17, the author just really paints a very sad but accurate picture of humanity. As man comes into the world, so he departs from the world with nothing. And so this writer says, so what does he gain since he toils for the wind? All his life long, he's working to get something, and he ends up with nothing. And then he says, all his days, he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Maybe you could put that on your bathroom mirror to encourage yourself each morning as you get up and face the world. He's simply acknowledging reality. You know what? Hell is prevailing in most people's lives. Let's be really honest. Hell is prevailing in most of our lives. As I stood on that rock, I realized how often I paint optimistic pictures of this world that don't connect to the real lives that many of us are living. And it's not what Jesus did, and it's not what we're called to do. Let's face reality. By nature, every single one of us lives in Caesarea Philippi. Worshipping the wrong things, loving the wrong things, pursuing the wrong things. But you know what Jesus did when he stood there on that rock? He said, though you by nature live in Caesarea Philippi, you no longer have to let Caesarea Philippi live in you. Because I prevail against the gates of hell. Man, talk about setting us free. Second negative reality I want you to see from this passage is that most believers, most people who, who claim to be following Christ, like the religious people of Jesus' day, are hiding from the world rather than going into it. Hiding from the world rather than going into it. Willing to say, praise Jesus when they're in their holy huddle. But God forbid anybody at work knows that I like would ever say anything like that. I mean, if I told them about Jesus, I'd be a castaway because their God owns and my God is small and weak. And so we hide. Staying in Capernaum instead of going to Caesarea Philippi, playing defense instead of playing offense, running away from the fight instead of running into the fight, living in isolation from culture instead of integrating God's light into the culture. Many Christians would never expect Jesus to go or take his people to a place like Caesarea Philippi. They want a sanitized, clean version of Jesus, not the real Jesus. Many Christians tend to isolate themselves from culture and avoid it. Yet Jesus purposely went into the center of it and said, this is where I'm going to build my church. And here's the reason. Jesus made it clear. He came for the sick, not for the healthy. He didn't come to hang out in the holy huddle and give high fives. He came to change the world. Look at how it happened in Matthew 9, verses 11 and 12. The religious people of his day hated that he was going to places like Caesarea Philippi. He says, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners, go to bad places and be with bad people? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. So I stood on that, that rock. I realized Jesus was squeaky clean in character. He was sinless. He was perfect in character. But he didn't isolate himself from people and places that weren't squeaky clean. 
because he knew the people who had dysfunctional, destroyed character needed to know the beauty of his holiness. He was light in darkness. He purposely went to those people. He purposely went to those places. And he encourages us to do the same. Now let me give you the two positive truths. The first positive truth is that Jesus prevails against the forces of hell. Do you know how great this is in that we live at the gateway to hell? We live in a world owned by darkness and defeat and emptiness and destruction and dysfunction and false worship. We live in this world and Jesus prevails against its forces. Look at John chapter 8 verse 12 when Jesus spoke again to the people. He said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, though they live in a world of darkness. But they will experience my light. I believe too many of us are trying to put God in a stone cathedral. We're trying to build him a temple that we can leave on a rock in faraway places and say, he's God and isn't that great? And then we go out and live our lives. But that's not where he's building his church. He's building his church in the hearts of human beings. He's building his church in the lives of people People are his church, and he's building that church in the midst of darkness. The question is, which church are you a part of? The church that the world's a part of, worshiping all the wrong things and experiencing so little of what God intended, or the church that Jesus is building by transforming our hearts and transforming how we live and experience this life. We need to follow him, and I believe many of us have chosen religion. Some of us haven't really chosen him. It's time to let him change you and prevail against hell in your life. And so before I bring the talk to its conclusion, I'm going to ask if you'd bow with me in a word of prayer. And as we bow, I have a couple of very significant things yet to share, so honor the moment, stay with me. But if you're here and you're going, I need his light, I want to encourage you to take the step to follow him. I'm going to pray, and you can take my words and make them your heart's expression to God. Just just say, Jesus, I believe you're the light. But I've been living separate from you in darkness. I've lived life my way, done life for me. And I've sinned against you. But you died on the cross so that my sin could be paid for. And rose again so I could have new life. And so I'm putting my trust in you. I'm choosing to follow you. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you took that step, it would be such an encouragement to me if you shared it with me if you let me know and I'm not talking about standing up now and shouting I'm talking about just letting me know so I can see that God is doing a work through what's happening here right now in lives like yours and we put together a letter that we'd like to send you about next steps that you can take in your relationship with God and so to tell us all you have to do is take the program that you were given as you came into one of our live campus settings and 
take the connection card out, fill it out, and then check that circle where it says, today you prayed to receive Jesus with me. And there are boxes at every exit in, of our campuses. And if you put that in there, we'll send you this letter about next steps. And if you're watching Northridge On Demand, just hit the what next button on your computer. We'd love to send you the same information. Once we accept Christ and start following him, look at what the Bible says should be true of our lives. The gates of hell won't prevail against them. Romans 8, verse 37. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're conquerors. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, nothing that exists at the gateway to hell will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The question is, are you living as a conqueror or or as a defeated one? Living in victory or in failure? Jesus prevails against all the forces of hell. Second positive truth I want you to see. God has called believers, those of us who have chosen to follow him, God has called believers to go into the world, not to isolate from it. He wants us to be light in darkness, not light hiding from darkness. He wants us to play offense, not defense. He wants us to live with courage, not in fear. Look at how he said it in Mark 16, 15. It all points back to Caesarea Philippi. Go into all the world and proclaim the good news to all creation. What was he saying? Don't stay in Capernaum. Go to Caesarea Philippi. Go to the gateways of hell and proclaim the good news. It will transform them. Look at Matthew 5.14. You're the light of the world. A city on a hill can't be hidden. Would you stop hiding in your holy huddles and would you please come out and live as light in the darkness? Caesarea Philippi explains the whole deal. That's why it changed me so big. God's given us a mission as followers of Christ and it's to wake up to Jesus and then wake our world up to Jesus. It's to experience his love and then to show our world his love. It's to, it's to experience and understand his truth and then to tell our world about his truth. And then it's to get involved in his kingdom building in his church and then to get others involved in that pursuit. It's our mission. And when we get involved in it, what happened back then will happen today. The darkness of this world will be overcome by the light. It would happen in our neighborhoods. It would happen in our workplaces. It would happen in our families. It would happen in the world. And then when it's happening in our personal life and we come together as a spiritual community, it should then be happening in the worlds we touch. And I just want to give you one example of it and then we'll be on our way. A couple years ago, we realized that God was doing a ton of light shining through the lives of our people in our region. Detroit's being impacted. Our region's being impacted. Our communities are being impacted. But, but there's a whole world out where hell is prevailing against it out there that we weren't touching. And so we started looking for places. And we found two communities in Zambia, Moyo and Hamando in Zambia, where, where just hell was prevailing against them and poverty and health and spiritual things. It was an awful thing. And so we decided we should help God build his church there. He wants us to be a part of building his church there. And so we had a weekend 18 months ago where we as a congregation were going to do the impossible. It had never happened. We're in partnership with World Vision. It had never happened with World Vision before, not even close. Where We thought we're going to try and get um, thousands of Kids sponsored in one weekend. And 18 months ago, 
as a part of this vision, this church family says, we're going to build our church in a place like that. We're going to be what Jesus called us to be. And literally, 2,589 kids were sponsored in one weekend here at Northridge. One weekend. I had, I had the privilege of going and visiting one of the kids that Roxanne and I sponsor, and his name is Avon, and this is his family, and I'm talking about talk, uh, being exposed to such darkness and such impact. They've really been impacted, but that we could be stepping in as a church family and Roxanne and I as a couple to make a difference in their lives, to shine the light of Jesus in their life, just, it blows me away. We've since sponsored two more kids, and now we're going to have to sponsor another one because my oldest daughter just keeps popping kids out and we're going to keep, you know, sponsoring as many kids as we have grandkids and so we're, we're doing this and, and it's really neat to, to be a part of their lives and I'm glad she's not in this service or she'd kill me but uh, that's a whole other thing and so we're, we want to shine a light in a world of darkness and I, I'll be really honest, you know, over the course of 18 months, a couple of sponsored kids have been, you know unsponsored, we've Though we have thousands sponsored, 329 sponsored kids have lost their sponsors from here at Northridge Church. And so I want to do two things. The first thing I want to, if you've sponsored kids, stick with it. Stay with the stuff. Be faithful because we're making a difference in the lives of people who until we came into their lives only knew hell prevailing. But now they're experiencing some light. Stay with it. And the fact that we're a growing church means that in 18 months, many of you weren't even here when we sponsored kids 18 months ago. And you have the right to be a part of this. And we just encourage you to, to step in and sponsor some kids. In fact, in our activity center here in Plymouth, um, and then in the lobbies of both of our campuses, we have people this weekend who are there with sponsored kids that you can go get. And so I would encourage you, if you haven't sponsored a kid or you'd like to sponsor more, if your kids are having all kinds of grandbabies and you're supposed to equal it out like I am and all that, go to the activity center or to the lobby in your campus or, and, or hit northridgechurch.com if you're watching online and, and sponsor a kid from these two communities that we're a part of. It'll change the world. And then we realized that that wasn't enough because we, we found out in our two communities, one child out of every five, uh, five kids died before the age of five. One out of five died before five because they had no access to health care. None. And so we decided as a congregation to go beyond the sponsored child thing, and we, we helped design two urban, two rural hospital settings with all kinds of outposts that could connect with the people that we could build so that this, this, we could start saving lives and showing the light of Jesus in this place, in the name of Jesus. And, and this last Christmas, we, we treaded into the impossible. The year before, we gave uh, close to $600,000 in in Christmas offering above and beyond our regular giving and we were asking for two and a half million to build these hospitals and and our, this community said we're going to take the light into the world of darkness and gave two and a half million dollars to build these hospitals in Zambia which is an awesome deal and the, 
The reason I'm telling you this now, we've been waiting and waiting, we've been working with them. The government of Zambia, the Ministry of Health of Zambia, actually asked us to upgrade our hospital plans so that they could have not just a couple of rural hospitals, but one zone one hospital that include all kinds of surgery rooms and x-ray facilities and more full-time doctors that would give access to, to health to these people and World Vision, and we ultimately agreed. And so we've brought, World Vision's brought other partners in who have, who have contributed so that the whole thing could be funded by us and then them. And here's the deal. They break ground for these two hospitals this coming week and they'll be done by Christmas of 2014. And we're so excited about what's going on here. If, if you'd like to be updated on this, northridgechurch.com Zambia. I mean, go to northridgechurch.com Zambia, be updated on this. We'll keep you updated. And you can join our Facebook group that's about the Zambia and the Sponsored Kids and World Vision Partnership. It's awesome. And then there were some people here at Northridge that said, that's not enough. We're doing water stuff, but we need, to, we need to do more water stuff. And so they came up with this crazy strategy in partnership with World Vision where, where they would run a marathon, get people to sponsor them, and raise money for water. Last year, we had 225 people run the Chicago Marathon to raise money for water. And this year, we have here at Northridge over 350 people running the Detroit Marathon to raise money for water, which is great. You can, there's the team. And at the end of this marathon, it looks like they're going to have between 900,000 and a million between last year and this year for water. And if you're in one of those orange shirts and you're running the marathon on October 20th, would you stand so that we can just thank you for your impact? Way to go. That's awesome. Awesome. Thank you. And, and here's the deal. We're building these hospitals, and I want you to see what they had before we went in to build these hospitals. This is what they had before, this piece of, we wouldn't even live in this thing. It was one of the only clinics they had in one of our communities, and now we're building these hospital networks, and it's because we decided that Jesus doesn't want us to hide in Capernaum. He wants us to go to the gateways to hell and to declare the light of Jesus Christ so he can transform the world. Jesus said, upon this rock, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell won't overcome it. And it's still happening today. And as we continue to wake the world up to Jesus and show them his love and tell them his truth and involve them, his world, this world will change. And here's what I want to say to you. Make sure you're a part of it. Don't let hell prevail in your life anymore. And don't live your faith in hiding. Because Jesus didn't call you to live in a holy huddle. Jesus called you to be light in the midst of darkness. And when you decide to be a part of his church, the world changes. And it's time this world changes. And let's commit to being where it starts changing. Are you in? Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. <laughs>